fence a little bit about doing this uh, series because I was like, these are just Bible stories. We all know these Bible stories pretty well. Um, and after I have prepared this lesson and really looked at it, I'm like super pumped to dive into these Bible stories because we are going to look at a lot of aspects of these stories that are not what they teach you in the children's building, okay? Like we're going to look at different angles and different sides of this because I think when we talk about our first story tonight, which Spoiler alert is Noah's Ark. Yeah, you missed it. Oh, yeah. Uh, we know quite a bit about this story. I mean, we can all sit here and we can all be like, okay, there's this man named Noah, and he takes animals on a big boat, and then God makes it rain forever and ever, and like they all live, and everyone else dies, and then there's a rainbow at the end. Like, we know that part of the story, okay? Like, we know parts of this story. But. We are going to uncover some craziness around this story tonight. Like there are so many parts of the story that I'm sure some of you may have never heard before. And other of you maybe have heard a long time ago, didn't realize it related to this story and didn't realize how this story affected the rest of the Bible. But before we can really look at what God did and what God made Noah do in building this ark... We have to look at exactly why God did what he did. Okay? Because we know, we we know, like that from the story, from the children's church story, we know that God was unhappy with how evil people were, and so he wanted to wipe out the population of the earth. Okay, we we know that part of it, but I don't think we fully understand the gravity of why he did what he did. And so if we look From the beginning of scripture, because if you don't know this, the story of Noah's Ark is actually in Genesis 6. So it's like really, really close to the beginning of the Bible. It's like one of the first stories in the Bible. So we can very easily look back to the story of creation. We look at Adam and Eve. We look at how God created Adam and Eve as perfect people. And they ultimately chose sin. They chose a life of evil. They chose a life of separation from God. And we see that they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And we know that Cain ultimately chooses evil in his life when he murders his brother Abel. And we also know from the line of Adam and Eve, there comes other figures in these first five chapters of the Bible, including one named uh, Lamech. Lamech? Lamech? Okay. Anyway, um, and we know that these people were evil. And we know of, of that last one that he, he had many wives. He took women as property. And he was just a really bad dude, okay? Like he, he caused a lot of problems. And so we very quickly see that what God started as this perfect picture very quickly spiraled out of control into a world that was filled with evil and horrible things. And... You know, this all points to, all these, all these pieces, these first five chapters and all these evil people really point to the beginning of Genesis 6. And if you look, at, and I don't know about your Bibles, but mine like gives like little headers, you know, and especially it gives like bold headers when you're entering into like a big story. And so before chapter 6, mine says the story of Noah. 
And so I think it's interesting that the story of Noah starts before chapter 6 because the first couple verses of chapter 6, in fact, the first eight verses of chapter 6, aren't really about Noah. It's not until chapter 9 that we see the verse that says, this is the account of Noah. So why are these first eight verses a part of the story of Noah? And that's what we're going to look at right now because this part of the story is not super kid-friendly. One, because it's kind of weird. Two, it's pretty messed up. And three, it's kind of scary. Okay? So earmuffs for Jacob. Okay? Like, I don't want him to have nightmares tonight. Okay? So let's look at the beginning of Genesis 6. Okay? So let's read uh, verses 1 through 4 in Genesis 6. It says, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful And they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children with them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard of the Nephilim before. Okay, but we're going we're gonna to camp out here for just a second because I think that the reason that this is included in the story of Noah's Ark is because this was a big piece of why God did what he did in the story of Noah's Ark. Okay, and so if you don't know what the Nephilim is, we are going to talk about that for just a little bit here. Okay, so be prepared because it gets a little freaky. Okay, so I think the fact that the, the, the Nephilim is brought up and discussed right before the story of Noah is proof that it is a direct it is directly related to the story of Noah's ark. Okay, I do not think that these things are different. I don't think that we have oh, we're going to talk about the Nephilim, oh and then it's a break and then we're going to talk about the story of Noah's ark. I think they are the same thing. Okay? And that's why we're going to start here is because it is actually the beginning of the story of Noah's ark. So honestly to me I feel that it is a valid thought that the flood was a direct response to the Nephilim's existence and an attempt to rid the earth of their existence, okay? And, and you're probably going, my goodness, why is God doing this because of the Nephilim? Okay, we're about to go into that. So if you don't know exactly what the Nephilim is and why God was willing to wipe the planet clean of life to get rid of them, we're going to discuss that. So the Nephilim is actually a highly debated topic of exactly who they were. And there's really two trains of thought, okay? There's one that's more of a traditional train of thought and honestly is the one that I align with and that I feel is true. And then there's one that is more of a newer thought of idea. And honestly, I think the only reason the newer one exists is because people have a hard time thinking that the real story is true. And they have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that this kind of stuff like actually happened because it almost sounds made up. Okay? So the first one I'm going to tell you is the new one because I don't think this one is true. So I want to talk about it. I'm going to, like I always do, guys. I'm going to give you what is out there. And you can do your own research and come up with your own thoughts and ideas on these things. But... This is the one that I do not believe to be true, the newer idea. 
And then we're going to talk about the one I believe to be true and how it relates to the story of Noah. So the first idea is that these people are the descendants of Seth. And if you don't know who Seth is, he is the third son of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And so God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth, who through all good people, theoretically, because the line of Cain was evil because of what he did, through Seth, all humanity would exist. Within the line of Seth, though, there was evil. And so there was a fallen piece of the line of Seth. And that the Nephilim, because Nephilah, the beginning of Nephilim, Nephilim is Hebrew for fallen. And so it would have been viewed as the fallen part of Seth's tribe. Okay? Now, that does not explain some of the things that we know about the Nephilim. And that's why I don't really see this one as accurate because I feel like it is more of just an attempt to avoid the truth of what it really is. Personally, I believe that the Nephilim were children of fallen angels, also known as demons. They were the children of fallen angels that were had with human women. Okay? So, shock factor over right there. Okay, so this is a really crazy thing we're talking about right here. That we have these fallen angels during the fall of Lucifer, who is Satan, right? During that fall, he took angels with him that chose to follow him. And those are what we know as demons, typically. So they were fallen angels as well. And so... It is believed that the Nephilim was, and it says right here in verse 4, when the sons of God, which if it was humans, it would have called them the sons of man, in my opinion, but the sons of God, which would have been angels or fallen angels, went to the daughters of men and had children with them. And they were heroes of old, men of renown. So what happened is, These fallen angels had children with human women. And the babies that were born were mighty warriors. They were were giants. It talks about the Nephilim being nine, maybe even ten feet tall. Okay, So they were gigantic people. They were extremely powerful given their spiritual nature. Okay, And I'm not saying, and I am not saying... That these people actually existed and everything. But we can track that there is, it is plausible to believe that the figures of Greek, Roman, Norse mythology may have actually been real people of the the Nephilim. Well, I can't talk anymore. The Nephilim. Okay? So we're talking people like Zeus, Hercules. Like those type of people could have potentially really existed and people viewed them as gods, right? Like that would make sense if there's a 10 foot man who can like crush stones with his bare hands and crazy things like that, mere humans would view them in a higher status. Like that would make sense and they would write stories about their greatness and they would write, you know, 
mythology about who they were. So that is plausible. I'm not going to sit here and say that Zeus and Hercules were real people who were basically demon-possessed giants, but it is a plausible idea. But the reality is that we know that the Nephilim were giant kingly warriors who in reality were kind of bullies, right? They liked to destroy. They liked to assert their power given their size and the power that they had over humanity. And like I said, given my belief about who the Nephilim are, were we have to realize that they were basically demon-possessed giants, okay? Which is a really freaky thought. If you thought about like a 10-foot man that's demon-possessed wreaking havoc on your hometown, that is a scary, scary thought, okay? And I don't think it takes much stretching of our minds or thought to understand why these beings would be problematic, not just for humanity, but especially problematic in a, in a world where God is the one true God. Like, why would people believe in a God that they feel like they can't see, right? Like, we, we even talk about this today, that kids and, and adults struggle with the concept of believing in a God that they cannot see, that they cannot touch, that they cannot, you know, interact with in a personal way which we're not going to get into the fact that you can interact with him in a personal way, but people say that all the time. How hard would it be to believe in a God that you can't see, that you can't feel, when there's a guy over here that looks like a God that you can see, that you can hear, that you can touch, that you can be a part of and follow? I think we can understand how these these beings would have been problematic in a world where God is the one true king and people are needing to follow him instead. And I think God knew that he needed to rid the world of their existence. And I think God knew that he needed to find someone trustworthy, someone who was righteous and and believed in, in the one true God and was willing to follow him in, even if it meant looking a little ridiculous at times. And so he finds this man, Noah. And verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And I think that's a crucial point, is that he walked with God. He did not follow these other beings, these other Nephilim that were viewed as gods in their day. And we see very quickly in verse 6, or chapter 6, that God creates a covenant with Noah, saying that if Noah placed his trust in God and builds this gigantic boat, that God would spare the lives of he and his family by giving them provision on this boat from the, from the mass extinction of life that is going to happen in an attempt to rid the world of the Nephilim. And, you know, this wasn't just some, like, little bass boat with a trolling motor that Moses could just float around on. 
This was a gigantic boat, okay? If, if you look in verse 15, it gives the actual specifications of the boat, and we know that it is approximately 450 feet long, which given what we know about things, that's about one and a half football fields long. We know that it was 75 feet wide. Uh, I'm sorry, where am I? 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. And if you look in here, the peak of the ceiling, I would guess to be close to 20 feet, just about. So if you stack the youth building on itself again, you have approximately how tall the boat was. Okay, And we know that it's two football fields long. And if you laid the youth building on its side, it would take four of them for the width. Okay, So this is a massive, massive boat and a massive undertaking. And why did it need to be massive? Because he was taking... Because water. Yes, because water. (laughs) No, because he was taking animals on the boat. He He was in charge of... Sustaining the life of all the animals on the planet. And we know how many of each animal Noah took on the ark, right? One female, one male. So one female, one male. What does that equal, Jace? 20. Close. Three. You want to guess again? Anyone want to take a guess at how many of each animal Noah took on the boat? Two? Two of each animal? One male, one female? So two of each animal? We can get on board with that? You're all wrong. No, what Jace is saying is that a female is a different animal than a male. So one of each? Okay, you're still wrong. You're still wrong. Honestly, Jace was a lot closer with his guess of 20 than any of you are with your guess of one or two. Because... If you actually read your Bibles instead of watch VeggieTales, you would know that he takes 14 of each animal on the boat with him. Wait, what? Okay. You'll get there. You'll get there. Read your Bibles. It's okay. Okay, listen. So it says, here's what he is instructed to do. Listen to me. Listen to me. You can read it later. Trust me, it's in there. It tells him to take seven pairs of all the clean animals, meaning ones that they are allowed to eat. You may have been wondering how they ate while they were on the ark. How would you like to be the animal that was spared the flood just to be killed, to be eaten as bacon on the ark? Okay, They couldn't eat pig, I know. That was a joke. That was a bad joke. Anyway, so they were supposed to, listen, it says they were, they were told... They were told to take seven pairs of all clean animals onto the ark and only one pair or two, a male and a female, of all unclean animals. And then what does it say about birds of the air? Seven pairs. Okay? So in reality, there, it was more, most likely that there were more animals that there were 14 of on the ark than animals that there were two of, which may have just blown some of your minds in here because we all see the mural on the children's wall of two animals and two animals walking up this ramp to this big boat, and they are all liars, okay? So, if you look at verse 5, if you look at verse 5, 
um, in chapter 7, we see that it says that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. And then in verse 16, it says the Lord shut him and his family in the boat. And I think it's interesting that they say that the Lord shut them in the boat. Like they could have very easily said that Noah shut his family in the boat or that they closed the boat or something. But it says the Lord shut them in the boat. And I think that's an interesting thing to point out because it shows that God was protecting them. And we see a direct correlation between verse 5 where it says that Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do and so the Lord shut him in the boat. And, I, and, and you know, I, this might be a, a strange way to look at it, but I honestly believe that if Noah had not followed all of God's commands, even if he would have built a boat, if he would have looked at all the animals and been like, man, I need to build a bigger boat. I need it to be 500 feet long and 90 feet wide and 50 feet high. If he would have done that, then God would not have protected his boat. But because Noah was faithful to God and did what God commanded him to do, God shut him in the boat and kept him safe. So let's read in verses 17 through 24 in Genesis 7. It says, For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose gently, greatly on the earth, and they were all, they were all the high mountains were under them. The entire heavens were covered. The water rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and creatures of the swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been on cruises before. I've been on one and it's kind of fun for a while. And then I don't know about you. But after you're out in the middle of the ocean for about the seventh, eighth day, you start to look over the side at the never-ending ocean and you just are like, I really want to see some land. And I look at the fact that Noah and his family, we always hear 40 days, 40 nights. So we're like, okay, he was in there about a month. That's a nice vacation, a good cruise that he went on above everything. They were in there for the 40 days, 40 nights of rain, plus 150 days that they sat on top of the water. And we'll get into more days that they were in there as the water receded. But we have water covering the earth alone for about 190 days. And this is before it begins to recede. And I think of the craziness of how long Noah and his family were on the zoo cruise, which does not sound like a place I'd want to be. I don't know if you've ever walked through the exhibits at the zoo and you walk into like that, the elephant enclosure and you're met with like this humid stink. Okay. Like literally they lived in that on the zoo cruise. 
And we know that they were in there at, at, at the minimum, they were in there eight months. At the maximum, they were in there 12 months. Okay? So they were on this boat for about a year. And finally, <clears throat> we see that the water begins to recede. And what does Noah send out to see? A dove. A dove? How confident do you feel in that answer? I felt pretty confident after that. Okay, so he sends out a raven. That was a nice try, though. Okay, I'm blowing everyone's mind tonight. Okay, no, listen. Listen to me. He sends out a raven that flies around, and then he sends out a dove. Okay, but everyone knows the dove. The dove's the hero. The raven did the first work, okay? But finally... We see that him send out a dove, and the dove comes back with nothing. Okay? He sends the dove out. He waits seven days, and we know. You, you can look at all these numbers. There's a lot of 40s. There's a lot of 7s. There's a lot of these things that are numbers of God. And if you know anything about God, like, numbers are a really big deal. Okay? Like, 7s are a really big deal. So, so Noah sends the dove out. It comes back with nothing. He waits seven days. He sends the dove out. It comes back with what? No, it comes back with an olive leaf. Read your Bible. Um, it comes back with one single fresh olive leaf, not an olive branch. Just because the picture has a branch doesn't mean it's a branch. No, okay. It comes back with an olive leaf. Okay, and so now Noah knows that there is vegetation sticking up over the water. And finally, he waits seven more days, sends the dove out again, and the dove comes back with... No, the dove doesn't come back. Okay? The dove stays gone. <laughs> nice try, though. <clears throat> no, the dove leaves, doesn't come back, and no one knows that it is then safe for he and his family to come off the boat. And finally, no one and his family come off the ark. And what's the first thing they do? What would be the first thing? I, I, I'm just trying to picture to myself. I'm trapped in this boat for a year. I've literally watched... The waters rise up. I mean, you got to think this was like a year ago that you watched the whole world drown, okay? Like, that would have been a really shocking moment, you know, to like, everyone's like banging on the side of the boat and you're just like, like, yeah, should have listened to God. Where's your Nephilim now, sucker? Like, um, no, but it would have been a really crazy moment to bend on the ark while the waters were rising and people were panicking, realizing that their life was about to end. And now that's not just like, that's not just a fresh memory. That's a distant memory. That was a year ago. Okay. And you get off the ark. You've been on this ark. You've been looking out over water for a year. What's the first thing you do when you get back on land? Never go near water again. Okay. Eat an apple, okay? I don't know if I like apples that much. Okay. So the first thing Noah and his family do is they build an altar. Look at Grace reading her Bible. They build an altar... And they make a sacrifice to God. And I think that's a very appropriate thing to do, right? They just spent a year. Yes, it's been a year since they watched all these people die at the hands of, of God's wrath for, for the evilness in the world. Okay, But 
They are looking around now. The boat stops. They get out and they look around and they realize there is nothing. Okay? Think about that. I think a lot of us like to picture the boat stops and they get out and it's just like, oh, they go back to their life. There is nothing. Okay? Literally a, a apocalyptic wasteland in front of them. No humans, no animals, probably not a lot of vegetation, right? It's all been killed. It's just starting to bud. There's nothing. And they look out at that and there's a reminder of the fact that God spared their lives in this situation. So the first thing they do, they build an altar and they sacrifice to God to thank him for sparing their lives. And we read that God is pleased with Noah and his family And he's pleased with their sacrifice. And it says that the aroma of the burning sacrifice is pleasing to God. And this is where we see this this beautiful rainbow that we always see where Noah's floating in the ark with the giraffe's head sticking up and he's waving and there's a rainbow over him. Okay, it's not like that, okay? He's on the land now. They're they're burning this sacrifice. And we see God reestablish this new covenant with humanity through Noah. And we read in Genesis 9... Starting in verse 12, it says this. And God said, this will be a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. And I I don't know how I feel about this because like God's like, when I see the rainbow, I will remember the covenant I made to not kill you all again. I'm like... Does this mean every time I see a rainbow, that's God like stirring up the, the, the flood gates? And then he's like, oh, there's my rainbow. Let's go ahead and put that water away. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. <clears throat> but this is a nice story. This is a nice ending to the story, right? Like, we all look at this story that starts out kind of creepy, kind of weird. And we, we see this horrific beginning to the story where he builds this boat and all of humanity dies. But then we see this nice resolution where God's like, here's a beautiful rainbow and I'm not going to kill you all again. Okay, like it's a nice ending to the story. But the story doesn't end there. Dun, dun, dun. Here's the twist, okay? Here's the kickback. At the end of chapter 9, we see a very disturbing end to this story. And really, it comes as the last thing that is written about Noah. Don't read ahead of me. I see you. We see a very disturbing end to this story that really sets the tone for future generations. At the end of chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, it says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside, His brothers took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their father's nakedness. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and found out that his youngest son had done to, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves. He will be to his brothers." And we don't know exactly what Ham did to Noah. There's a lot of speculation, and I'm not even going to go into that because we really don't know. We don't know. It could have been as simple as he just saw him naked. And that was very frowned upon. We obviously see the other two brothers walk in backwards and cover him so that they do not see him. Okay? There are other things that people claim happened, but we do not know. We know that whatever Ham did, it upset Noah. That it was taboo. That it was wrong. That it was sinful. And it leads Noah to curse his line. To curse Canaan, and if you look, and if you guys remember back to our our series on women of Christmas, what were a lot of the women that were entered into that story? They were Canaanites, okay? That's, That's the people of Canaan, okay? And this is why we look back and we say why the... The Hebrews disliked the Canaanites so much because they were evil people because of this curse right here. And so again, we see a piece of the story of Noah's Ark that drastically shapes the way we read the rest of the Bible. Why were the Canaanites evil? Because of Noah's son, Ham, and his actions against his father. But in reality, what we take from the end of the story is a couple things. One... If you read all in there, it talks about multiple times that the reason that God says he is not going to wipe the earth clean again is because God acknowledges that humans are born wicked, that they are wicked from their childhood. It talks about that in there. So we know that humanity is born wicked. That means when we look at this idea of Not one is righteous, not even one in the New Testament. Or when we see this idea that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in the New Testament. These things are not new ideas. These are things that are established by God at the very beginning of the Bible. That humanity is in its nature evil and in its nature wicked. We are all sinners. Every single one of us is born a sinner. Wicked, evil, and separated from God. And there's nothing we can do to change that about who we are. And this is really the first place we see that in Scripture, is in Genesis 9. And two, that leads us to the second idea from this story that we should be so grateful for God's grace. Because we see God's grace poured out on Noah and his family in that he spares their life. This is, a, this is literally imagery Of God's grace through Jesus Christ for us, that he protects us. He shuts us in the ark. Literally, we see God's grace for Noah being faithful and trusting in God. Despite all the other crazy stuff that the world has to offer him, Noah remained faithful to God. And we see God's grace shine through that. And he protects him in that. That even through Noah's wickedness, and we see that wickedness come at the end of the story. So we know that Noah was a sinful man. He wasn't some perfect guy. But God still used him because he trusted God. He gave him his grace despite his wickedness. 
And so we should be so grateful of God's grace that when we, when we come to a moment like Noah getting out of the ark, we should build an altar and sacrifice and praise and worship God and say, thank you for providing grace in my life despite my wickedness. So one, we see that humans are wicked. It's the first time we see that. Two, this is really the first time we see God's grace poured out onto humanity. And we should be so grateful for that. And third, we see something that's really important here. That trusting God is more than a mindset. And I think a lot of us start to believe that to be a Christian, we just have to believe in Jesus. And you, you do. On a basic level, it's that simple. But we believe that being a Christian is a mindset. That we can live our life however we want, do whatever we want. But in the end of the day, as long as we have this Christian mindset and we say we're a Christian and we believe in Jesus, that it's okay. But we see from this story that trusting God and following God is not a mindset. It's action. Noah didn't sit here and go, I trust you, God, but I'm not going to build this boat because I trust that you will provide for me the day that something goes wrong. It's not, I trust in you, God, and I believe that you're going to do the things that you say you're going to do, but I want to live my life how I want to live my life right now, and maybe whenever I'm older and later, I will circle back around to doing what you asked me to do. Guys, following God, being faithful to him and trusting in him is more than a mindset. It is a lifestyle. It is action. Being a Christian is not just a label. It's not just who you are. It's everything about you. It's what you do. It's who you are. It's how you act. It's everything. And ultimately, it's a trust that God will lead us down the right path for our life if we trust him. You don't think Noah took some ridicule while he's building a giant boat? I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen the movie Evan Almighty. It's pretty dumb, but it's kind of funny at times. But think about in that movie where Steve Carell, okay, who apparently is Noah, I don't, anyway, the ridicule that he takes as he's building this giant boat. And I can imagine that Noah faced a lot of similar ridicule, maybe without the news cameras, but a lot of the same ridicule about the way that he was following God. But despite all that, Noah trusted in God. He put God's plan for his life into action in a trust that God's plan for his life was better than anything that Noah could plan for his own life. And so I don't know, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what God has put in front of you. But if you're sitting here tonight and you know that God is leading you in a direction to do something, whether it's to commit to praying like we talked about at the beginning, maybe it's to pray for one of your lost friends. Maybe it's to share the gospel. With, I don't know. But whatever God has placed in front of you today, I want you to realize that it is time to stop allowing your Christianity to just be a mindset, to just be a label for your life, and it's time to turn it into action. It's time to step up and be the person that God has called you to be. 
It's time to pick up the hammer and pick up a nail and start building the ark that God has called you to build. We see parallels between the story of Noah and what we're going through today. And it's time for us all to be the people that God has called us to be. I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we'll get out of here. God, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for these students that are here, and I just pray that you would give them a boldness to live out their faith, that that they would not see being a follower of you as something that's just a label or a mindset or just something that they are when it's convenient, but that they would allow it to define who they are, that they would seek after you and follow you with everything they do in their life. God, I just pray that you would just be with them, help them, guide them, direct them, give them wisdom, show them the way that you want them to go. I pray that you would be with them as they go from here, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.